Okay. If I suppose to quit at 11, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I don't think I told you guys about having to walk off from a half a million dollars in 1957. Did I tell you about that? I want to tell you this, because this is the answer to your question. When I was you were sober, I ran into Peace Property between the corner of Garvia and Normandy. It was owned by some very good friends of mine, Jackson Brothers, Brothers. Very good Mormons, if you'll pardon me, Dave. Did you hear the one? I'll tell you what the one about this, you know. The Pope got the college cardinals together. And he said, boys, I just got a phone call, and I got some good news and the bad news. He says, well, which you want first? They figured it out, and they said, we'd like the good news first. This is wrong. The phone call said that the second coming of Christ had already taken place. Christ is the fifth time. Walking the earth. They thought that was great. He says, now that's the bad news. He says, the telephone call came from Charlotte City. <laughs> so, I knew this block there was 10 acres on the corner down there, and I knew it was a tremendous buy, and I thought it was a good place for a market. In my early years in the market business, I got all of my business from promotions. I found who owned properties and talked to them about either leasing them or building the building or whatnot, you know. And if they wanted to do something, I'd get a tenant for it. And all that stuff, or I'd buy the property for them. And all that was just to get a fixture order. I wasn't in the real estate business at that time at all. I was in the fixture business. Now, I knew values, and I was pretty well familiar with what would make a good market site and what wouldn't. And I liked this property, and I thought, who will I get to buy it? And it occurred to me that my boss might want it. Because his father started the business, and he was a wealthy man before he took it over. 1908, his dad had started this thing. And he was very wealthy. And so, I went in one morning, and I said, Victor, I found something she might want. And he said, what is it? And I told him about it. And he listened, and he said, go buy it, Charlie. And I said, no. I said, I'll show it to you, but I won't go buy it. Well, I said, you like it, go buy it. I said, no, Victor. Get in the car and we'll go down. We can go down and back in an hour. And so we did. And he looked at it. And he said, go buy it. I said, no. Let's find out if anybody else in town likes it. Let me bring a couple of market operators down here and see if they like it. See if they'd like to have a building on it. He said, Charlie, you like it, go buy it. And I went and bought it. And when I got to restroom, one night after everybody had gone but his sister and myself, he called me in. The two of us were with me. He said, Charlie, I didn't want that problem. I don't want it. I don't need it. I want to get you in the same position I'm in. And as soon as I get you in the same position I'm in, we'll retire together. Now, I'm giving you 25% of this deal. 25% of this deal is yours. Now, go ahead and get us a tenant, and we'll build him a building, and we'll go from there. 25% of this deal is yours. And I went, and I got bonds to take a deal on it. They didn't like it. But, said they, that's the first time we've ever had any uh, cash going linked to Charlie. 
And he's not given us a bomb studio store yet on location. So, let's take it. It can't be that bad. It can't hurt as much. So they took the deal because of me. And they knew about my 25%, not only for me, but for Richard. And so, we built them the building. Jackson Brothers built it. And they built it for half a fee. Five percent and some ten. Because I'd known them since they were labor contractors. The two boys and their father and their uncle. Contracted labor for duplexes over there between Highland and La Brea and North of Third Street and then got part. And I was the duplex king. We worked together a lot. And we were sort of good. And so they wanted to do something for me too. They built a building for our tea. We needed a loan. I went to Vern Jenkins. He was chairman of the board of uh, Oxygen Life. And I'd call on his son. And he, he'd gotten sober. And Vern thought the sun rose and set in me. I went down to him. I said, Vern, we need a loan to build a building. He said, what do you want? He said, you have anything you've got down here, including the company. Just tell me what you want and you've got. And so, everybody in the deal knew all about it. And we built a building and bonds opened it and it was a bonanza. From the very beginning, it was a bonanza. We were getting from 17 to $2,100 a week rent. A week, gentlemen, rent, because we had a percentage lease. And God, it was just so good. 100, 125, 140,000 a week they were doing volume. On a percentage And everybody was very happy. And then I got me half department stores. And we built them a department store. And they went the same way. And everything was just beautiful. To make a long story short. Ten years later, in my 11th year, Victor was going to retire. And I was going to retire with him. Now all this time, we had talked about this thing. We talked about what I was doing. We had laughed and cried together because we just did one man. Up until the last year. And my 11th year, it seemed like the guy was going away from me, but I just thought it was because he was retired. And he was, you know, his mind was on something else. But I was retired not only once. We talked about it for 10 years. And when it came time to do it, well, incidentally, first, the next thing is, I bought that house where I live now. Because I was going to retire. Because my part of this year, this deal was worth 500,000 bucks for this time. A minimum of 500,000. And that was my security, you see. So I was going to retire. Now I had a very, very good job. Commendable motivation. I was going to retire and spend my whole time working with bums like you at my own expense. There's nothing wrong with that motivation, huh? So I bought that house to retire. And it came right down to the wire, and they couldn't do it. He could not do it. It was too much money. And he had to deny the whole thing. And it, it was impossible. Because we had been just like that. We had laughed and cried for ten years. And we discussed this thing time and time again. We were going to retire again. 
and he couldn't do it. It was too much dough. And he had to deny the whole that thing. Now, I, I was naturally uh, destroyed because I could not believe that this man would do that. I couldn't believe that he could possibly do it. And my insight was you can't let him do this for his own benefit. You can't let him do this to himself. And my toenails and my hair and where I was right. And my insight was this is for your family, your kids and your wife. This is that thing. You know. And it just can't be, you know. And I thought the council, good council. Legal counsel. And they said to me, Charlie, you can go in the court and put your hands down. You've got every witness in town. Everybody in town knows about that thing. From him and from you. So you can take him to court and beat him. Like that. Then I considered taking him to court. But I couldn't take him to court. Why? Because in 1946, he came in to throw me through that window, but he didn't. He didn't throw me through that window. And I couldn't take him to court. And I couldn't judge him. I couldn't resent him. I couldn't see him. Because if I did, I'd get drunk, and if I got drunk, I'd die. And here I am between a rock and a hard place, suffering the tortures of the dam. Because I couldn't see through this damn thing, you know. It was just a reversal of everything that we'd built on for ten years. Now, it was interesting because his sex told her this thing, too. And I would talk to her about it. And she heard things that she wanted to hear. But when she didn't want to hear anything, uh, even if she heard it, she didn't hear it. Because she had a hearing problem. And she would tell me, uh, Charlie, I, uh, I didn't get it. I didn't hear it right. Well, now, the reason she said that was because this guy's dad had set up a $30,000 thing for her, and this year hadn't paid it. And she had $30,000 coming. And she couldn't take that. She didn't get it he had to tell me I never heard you know. And I did the whole thing. You can see what a thing it was. Because I had subconsciously come to believe this is my security. And it took me a whole year of the most excruciating pain. The only thing that was good about that pain period, except what came out of it, was that there wasn't one instant in the whole year that it ever occurred to me to take a drink. Now that's, that's because I suffered the tortures of the day. But, long towards the end of the year, I came to see that there was only one security. This is the answer to your question. There's only one security. That's my own relationship with my own God. There are no values out there. The values are here. There's evidence of value out there, but no value. 
The minute we put a value on a million bucks, we'll try to use her on the next. Because, well, I don't lose it. Just in that 500 grand, you know? So there's evidence to value out there, but the value is right here. Remember the man said, there's the last time I'm going to show this in this meeting. Excuse me, Paul. Where are you? <laughs> you got that. He had to run out because he's had this story 14 times. <clears throat> the man said, lay up for yourselves treasures. No, he said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Well, the rust corrupts and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Where rust does not corrupt, and thieves don't break through and steal. Because where the treasure is, there will be the heart also. So I had to come and see that there's only one security, and that's my own relationship with my own God. And when that happened, I called it in one night. Everybody was gone again. And I said, Victor, I want to go through this deal with you once more. And I don't want you to let me make one mistake. If I say anything that isn't exactly as it happened, stop me. And we learn that out or stop talking. And I went through the door step by step. And when I got through, I said, Victor, you didn't stop me. And he says, no, Charlie, I didn't. And I says, is that exactly the way it happened? And he says, yes, it is. And I says, Victor, you take it. You need it. I don't need it. God bless you, Roberto. And he flipped off my back, and the five hundred grand slipped off my back, and everything slipped off my back. And I became a free man. And instead of retiring in 57, I bought the business. And I worked another 15 years. And I commuted <laughs> from the uh, of the to 40 nanometers every day. And that's people who say, oh, how can you do that? How can you do that? became the best time of my day. Because it was the only time you know when I was alone. But not by myself. When I was alone with God. And after the 15 years, I had it more. You see? Now what am I talking about? I'm talking about the only security there is. When you and I think that we are because we have a job or that we have some dough in the bank or this or that or the other thing. Don't you believe it? That became one of the greatest living lessons I have ever learned. Because there's never been a day since then or an hour since then that I haven't known where my studio is. It's my own relationship with my own body. And so, yes, one day at a time. One second at a time. The isness of the now is the only thing. It is not that we do not make appointments for next year. If you'd see my calendar, you'd know what I'm talking about. It's not that we don't know what we're going to do tomorrow when we're in the business world. But it's that we do today's job today and tomorrow's job tomorrow. And we're going to get it mixed up. 
Again and again and again, I can stand up here and tell you gentlemen, God is sufficient and to all my needs. And he is. I'm telling the truth. But if I don't do something about it, it'll start to death. It's a true statement. But there's something for me to do. The gift of God was made its foundation of the earth. But not on my terms, on his. And his terms are that I act like his kid. That I go about his business. And when I do that, I come into my inheritance. And it's that simple. It's that simple. It's my business to go about his business. And it's his business to take care of Now, we got one more session. This is the only one I've taken you over time. And it was your fault. <laughs> <laughs> so, until the next meeting, God bless you. Don't too many of you go go home because we're going to talk about the body of son this afternoon for a little while. And it's the greatest story on earth as far as I'm concerned. It's my story. <laughs> All good things have to come to an end, I guess. But in thinking again, this might be just a giddy, not again. I want to thank you gentlemen for coming down here. I don't believe that we could have handpicked a group of men that would have been more to our purpose than the ones that are here. It's a fabulous bunch of guys. It's been a most amazingly beautiful weekend. There's been a lot of love in the grounds and in the meeting rooms and in the hospitality rooms. A lot of love. The spirit has been excellent. As far as I'm concerned, I've never been to anything that has been more nearly right uh, than this has been for me. And I thank you very much for coming. I want that we again should give Arthur Bagel and John Crean and Howe, a good rousing. Been a lot of work going into this, but they did it. Bagley Howe. <laughs> <laughs> the other two were not fullbacks, they were drawbacks. <laughs> I can think of nothing that I might have wanted to say when I got down here that I haven't said sometime during these hours that we've been together. Of course, we can talk about this thing from now to Christmas. Never get to because there's there's no way that you can get through talking about this. <laughs> One of the greatest things about being, getting older in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is the memories 
that build over the years. The memories, the tremendous experiences that we have one with another as we go along. I remember when we went to Toronto in 65 for the international up there. There's an old boy by the name of Frank McLean from Edmonton. I'd met Frank a number of years before. And he was, I had a beautiful experience with him. And I was hoping as we went up there that Frank might be there. And he came. And uh, when I spotted him immediately, we went for coffee and we sat down there and talked. And I told him how I so wanted him to be there. And I said, all the way up here, I was thinking about supposing five years ago, I had have said to myself, I've done enough. I've done my stint. I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to retire. Let the other guys have it now. I've done my thing. And I was so happy coming up here that I hadn't done that. Because I feel that the last five years has been the greatest period of my own growth. And the tears came into old Frank's eyes and he sat there and he says, I drove down here from Edmonton. And all the way down, I was thanking God that I had remained active. And I've always known this because I felt that the last few years of my great experience growth. And I'm sure that's one of the great spiritual values of things like this. Is the memories that will go with us through the years. Sharing our experience, things out one with another in love. It's a beautiful thing. And as we said a while ago, this ain't no big deal. This ain't no big deal. People don't get sober on fundages. They don't get sober on intellectual knowledge. It ain't no big deal. It's a little deal. Little things are the things we remember. There was a guy who came up to me 20 some years ago in Claremont. And I believe he was the ugliest man I ever saw. He was tall, six, four, five. And he had kinky hair. And it was standing straight up. And he had ears like that. The great beak on him. And no teeth. He didn't have two And after the talk, he came up to me. And he smelled like two breweries. Not one, two. And he said, Chuck, I heard what you said. And I'm not going to have to drink anymore. And every Christmas from that time, wherever the guy's been, on Christmas Day, I get a call from him. And I ask the phone. He says, don't take that first drink. He says, if you don't take that first drink, you can't get drunk. It's been 20 some odd years. He's called me every year. I heard what you said, and I don't have to drink anymore. Little things that make this thing so big. 
And a few little things I want to share with you before we go into the last business of the day. Many of you have heard me say this, but it's more real to me than it ever was. Twenty some odd years ago, I talked on Sunday night in Highland Park. And after the meeting, there were four or five of us standing in the middle of the room with their arms on each other's shoulders. And we were saying to each other, how lucky can a man be? How lucky can a man be? How fortunate can you be? That a tongue-chewing, babbling idiot drunk could have a life like this. How fortunate could he be? And one kid wasn't saying anything. And pretty soon he looked at me and he says, Chuck, he says, I made it. I ain't never read no books. He says, there's no sense in me reading books because I don't understand them. He says, I don't know nothing about God. He says, I don't know nothing about the Bible. But this no man can take away from me. He says, when I do these simple things one day at a time, the best of my ability, I feel clean inside. And good things happen in my life. And when I could talk, I said, son, don't ever read no books, no time. That's the very essence of all the books that were written. That's what we want, that we might feel clean inside. And have good things happen in our lives. And about three or four years ago, I was talking to Highland Park Group, and Eddie Hawthorne was there. And I got to thinking, well, Eddie was in that meeting that night when this monkey said, I'm ignorant. Glass and home was over. Seemed like I could sneak away. I caught Eddie on his way out. And I said, Eddie, do you remember who it was that said, I ain't never read no books? I'm ignorant. Eddie says, no. He started to walk away. <laughs> and he came back. He said, it was me. You know, and it was. It was Eddie. And he's had 25 years or so. So, happy in this program. It's beautiful. A little earlier than that, I was at Jack someplace, I don't know where. And there was a kid came up to me. And he said, Chuck, he said, you know what? It's a hard horse to find God. And I didn't want to answer him. I was tired. I wanted to get the hell out of there. And I thought to myself, I'm going to have to listen for an hour to some explanation of why it's a hard work to find out. And I couldn't get away from him, so I had to say no. Why is it so hard for us to find God? And he says, because you ain't lost. <laughs> <laughs> because you ain't lost. Isn't that fabulous? Because <laughs> they ain't lost. He goes, you see, all we got to do is come back home. And we find God's always been there. We've been away. And there's another old boy. His name is Big Smith. Big Smith was from Flint, Michigan. And he was my kind of a drunk. He was the kind of guy that drove his car off the end of a pier and threw brick buildings. 
two might run onto a blonde with a bottle of muskadoodle and get into a hell of a lot of trouble. Stay home. He didn't say that. He didn't say nothing. He just said, give me my inheritance. And he gave it to him. And the kid went away from home into a far country and wasted his substance on riotous living. Now, uh, that might not fit you, but it fits me pretty good. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> suspiciously like me. And he wasted his substance on Ryan's living. And when they spread all, there arose a mighty famine in the land. And as serious as this is, took the hell out of me. If there was ever a bunch of people that should understand the famine, <laughs> how many times have you come over drunk? Find everybody that's even looking for you. Ninety percent of them just tell you they don't want to see you again. <laughs> and the other ten percent have been trying to bank one of your checks with a tunnel traffic. She's already difficulty. I don't think there's any families like that no more. That's a family. So the kids, after it's been all, there was a mighty famine in the land, and what did he do? Did he come back home? No, he didn't. He said, just like you did, and like I did. He went to a man in that country. We did too. We went to a man in that country, doctor, psychiatrist, priest, preacher. He went to a man in that country, and the man put him to work. <clears throat> and of all the things he might have put him to do, and he didn't. He gave him a job tending the pace. Now this is very significant, because this is a Jew boy telling this story. And Jew said, like priest. There would be nothing so obnoxious to a Jew than having the ten pigs. And there he was, turning the pigs. Meaningful it is, because that means the guy was down. Low. He was low down. We have a name for it. We call it a low bottom. And he's done hit himself a low bottom. And while he was in pigs, he was pigs, he got hungry. And he threw would eat the husks that the pigs did eat. And no man gave them to him. He was beyond human help. And no man gave them to him. Probably no human power could have relieved their alchemism. Same thing. And while he was there, with everything gone, it occurred to him, to him that in his father's house was plenty, plenty of despair. They were wealthy. And here he was, totally done in. But he said to himself, I can't go back there and say to my father, look, Dad, I'm your boy. Do you recognize me? I'm your son. Couldn't do that. Couldn't do that. The self-condemnation that goes with the disease of alcoholism. How we condemned ourselves. How we hated ourselves for the failure that we were making in the business of living. 
and so it was with him. But he also remembered that the servants back there, the hired servants, were pretty well taken care of. They were living a lot better than he was. And so he said to himself, I'm going back home. And I'm going not to say I'm your son. How about taking me back home? But he said, I'm going to fly for a servant's job. Hired servant. So he made a decision. He says, I will arise and go to my father. We made a decision. We made a decision to turn our world alive over the of God. It's very parallel to my life. All the way through. It's my story. And your story, I see. So he got up and started home. Now here's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Here's the thing itself. This is the essence of our program. The kid had made, made his decision and he started home. And the father saw him a long ways off and came to meet him. Ah, this is fantastic. And the father saw me along where it's all. And the man says to me, Mister, are you looking for somebody? And I said, No, sir. And he says, What were you looking for? And thinking it was better, and I said, Well, if it would interest you, sir, I was looking for surprise. And everything about that man changed in the twinkling of an eye. I was hooked before he ever opened his mouth again. Because it was obvious that he was glad I was there when everybody that knew me wouldn't even spit on me. My own flesh and blood wouldn't have anything to do with me. And here was a stranger. So glad that I was there, that he lit up. And when he spoke again, this is what he said. He says, why well, take off your hat and coat. You're in the right place. And he took me and rocked me to sleep. God came to meet me through you who had already found your way. Now, I didn't know you, but you knew me. Because I was an alcoholic. And it didn't make any difference. You didn't ask me if I was hot. If I was in bad with the law, if I owed money, if I had turned over a new leaf, if I was sorry for my sins, he didn't say those things to me. Any quick reading? He didn't say that. Take off your hat and coat, you're in the right place. And so the father saw the kid a long ways off and he came to meet him. And the kid started trying to tell him what a bum he was, what a failure he had been in the business living. And again, the father didn't hear him, didn't argue with him at all. He didn't say, Look, 
I've got the I've got the record on you right here. And you sure are a bum. You're no good. I've got it right down here. I know every time you turn right when you see the turn left. <coughs> now get the grubbing hole and get back here on the back forty. And grub out those persimmon spots and sassafras bushes. And maybe if you do a good job, 25 years from now, I'll invite you in, and I'll invite you in for lunch. He didn't say that. He didn't say nothing. He fell on his neck and kissed him. And he put a ring on his finger, the symbol of eternal life, no beginning and no end. And he calls to the servants. And he says, kill the fatted cat. We're going to have a party. The boy was dead. And he's not alive. He was lost, and he's come back home. So let's have a point. No condemnation. No reprimand. No argument. The love of the father for his child. You and I, having run out of our own resources, have been privileged to wander into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and to stay and to find the same experience, the body of the sun. We come home. It's not normal to walk alone. It is not normal to walk alone. It's normal for us to walk down the high road of life with our arms around each other. Sharing our experience, strength, and hope one with another in life. This is normal. Normal is breathing. It's not normal to be away from the father's house. We're like little kids that are lost in the woods. And darkness has come on. We're scared to death. And we wander into an alcoholic anonymous meeting and find ourselves and each other and God. What a deed it is. What a fabulous thing it is. Now I recognize my problem 30, uh, 10 years before coming here, and that's 39 years ago. 39 years ago. And in this 39 years, millions of men and women have died of the same disease that I had. The disease of alcoholism. Because they didn't find this place. There are many dying now. Almost in rifle shot right here. Dying of the disease of alcoholism. And they don't know. They don't know. <laughs> we might say to ourselves, how come we were fortunate? And there's no answer to that. We were. 
and myself having over 10,600 days, one day at a time, for the finest life that anybody ever dreamed of. And from a tongue-chewing babbling idiot, to a personally satisfactory, conscious partnership of the living God that made us in the entire business of living. What a transition. What a miracle of life. What a thing to keep us practicing these principles in all of our affairs and carrying this message to the alcoholic who still suffers. How fortunate are we that we have a lifetime job outlined for us in step 12. And as I have said on many occasions, I don't know who to be most grateful for or to. I don't know. Because I didn't come to you to find God. I didn't come to you to get my wife back. Or my kids. Or my health or my sanity. I'd looked for God for 30 years and I couldn't find him. Because I had him located someplace else. And I came here to find out how to live one day at a time. Without drinking. And guys just like you took me in and shared their experience strength and hope. But more than that, and much more than that, their love. Guys that I didn't know. <clears throat> but they know me. They knew me. And so, insofar as I am capable, capable of doing it, I will be attempting to share this thing with folks. As long as there's breath in me. And again, and again, and again. You guys get dear to me all the time. All the time. Because you are the guys that nursed me back to health. <clears throat> and helped me do that which I could not do alone. And showered enough love on me that I became, I hope, aware of us that God is love. God is love, and he that abideth in love abideth in God. And God abideth in him. And so I'm so grateful to you, can't see. I love you.
It's my joy to have this weekend with you. And I shall never forget it. Because some part of every one of you is going to be with me for the rest of my life. So I thank you again. And all I have to do is to look in the eyes of a bunch like this. To see my God. God bless you. Thank you very much.